Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. You are listening to a Sukkot sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. There's a very poignant midrash in a collection called the Psikta de Rav Kahana, which shows how in some way very little has changed in 2,000 years in terms of how we understand life and family and the arc of reality. And the Midrash is about a man who has a daughter and starts imagining life being a father to his daughter. And he's happy because who wouldn't be? But the Midrash keeps repeating over and over and over again, Ein simchato shlema. But his happiness wasn't complete. His happiness wasn't complete. Why wasn't it complete, giving birth the first time to a child? Because he started to realize that this child would experience pain in her life. And this child, once, if things went the way they were supposed to go, would mourn him in her life. And this child lives in Holland, if you get the reference. (laughs) And so he was joyful, but the Midrash tempers his joy with a recognition that there's no such thing as simcha without limitations. There's no mazel tov that shouldn't come with some implied recognition of the complexity of any joy. And the complexity of joy is worth thinking about on Sukkot in particular. We sang the first time the first Torah was lifted, um, one of the many places in the Torah that the specific mitzvah of Sukkot is identified as an obligation to be happy. You shall be happy on your Chag. Chag is a generic word for festival, but it also specifically means Sukkot. And you shall be, untranslatable word next, Ach Sameach. You should be Ach Sameach. The notion is that this is the time of year after the intensity of the last few weeks. We're supposed to be in a holiday where the primary experience should be Simcha. The question is what does that Ach mean? In what way does that word change, alter, amplify, diminish, add context? add texture to the simcha that we're supposed to be achieving on Sukkot and perhaps any day. I want to offer four paradigms for what ach might mean, the last one being the one that is most animating me today as I think of what Sukkot is and when I think of what joy is and when I think of what joy isn't. The first reading of ach is that it's a limiter, Yes, be very, very happy on your chag, but you're going to be a little reserved in your joy. Why? This is an agrarian economy. These laws were directed at farmers. We cannot possibly fathom what was at stake when the harvest had to be brought in auguring whether or not the year was going to be a year of plenty or a year of disaster. There's no farmer who sits comfortably at the beginning of the harvest. There might be a farmer who feels proud of what he or she has done to get him and the family to that point. 
There might be a farmer who looks out the window and says, the stalks look clean and strong and I feel good about it. But don't be too confident in what's going to come because we don't know what's going to come. So yes, you toiled and you planted months ago and you watered and you took care of things, but vaita achsameh. Have some of your simcha be tempered as a recognition that there's no simcha that is not somehow limited by the vicissitudes of life and the complexities of reality. That's one paradigm. And very uh, evocative when you think of what we're going to read at the end of Sukkot, the book Kohelet, the book Ecclesiastes, which is a very um, uh, unromantic, uh, totally realistic look at what life can offer and what life can take from you. That you should not ever fully dive into any simcha because there might be something just around the corner that's going to trip you up. It's not a fatalist attitude, it's a realistic attitude. One paradigm. Second paradigm offered in some of the texts is the exact opposite. Ach is an intensifier. You should be happy on your holiday. You should be ach so sameach. What could be better? Perhaps you've had these days in your life, perhaps you've had these days in your Sukkot when the weather is not like this. By the way, a, a early October warm-ish East Coast Sukkot, that's achsameh, right? It, before it's gotten really cold, I, didn't ne- I never grew up wondering if it was going to hit 100 degrees in my sukkah until I moved here, right? Uh, there are moments when I sit in my sukkah and I experience the natural world and I wave the four species and I feel a sense of relief from the season being over and the world opens up to me and I say to myself, this, this can't get better than this. I'm sitting in my sukkah and I'm sitting in eternity. I'm sitting in my sukkah and I'm sitting in Yerushalayim. I'm sitting in my sukkah and I'm living in the ancient world where my ancestors were making pilgrimages to the holy city. And the simcha seems unbridled in that moment. And so maybe the Torah is saying, not recognize that all simcha must be limited, but recognize that sometimes you need to let yourself go and experience the fullness of the simcha while it's here. Ba'ita achsameh. Third paragraph. Oh, I want the different translations, Vaita Achsameh, that represent it as an intensifier. The JPS translates that as you shall have nothing but joy. That's how they deal with that word ach. The old Hertzchumash, thou shalt be altogether joyful. And Everett Fox, who has a beautiful lyrical translation of the Torah that came out about 20 years ago, I love how he did this. He wrote, and you shall be, comma, oh, comma, so joyful. Like a Oh, Ach Third paradigm. A paradigm that recognizes that the window within which simcha can sometimes be experiences, experienced is exceedingly narrow and sensitive and tentative. Like, if you remember the era of vinyl, which I know is coming back, by the way, tapes are never coming back, right? No one's ever going to say, I'm going to start a new business making eight tracks popular again. But now vinyl is making it. My daughter bought a record player last year. It's like, what decade am I living in? But so vinyl is making a comeback. Raise your hand if you grew up with vinyl, right? So you know how delicate it was to get the needle in the groove, particularly if you wanted to start not on the first track of the album, but the second and third. If you got it just right, 
It was magnificent, a sound that no high-def CD ever produced. If you got it a little bit off, it was excruciating, right? The sound of that receptor in the needle, a little bit out of the groove, not a lot of the groove, was the difference between things being just right and just awful. I think there's something about that aspect of Sukkot that is present as well as we understand the simcha of this season. And it comes from a source in the Talmud that tells us that, and I've thought about this idea before I saw the forecast for today, if it rains on Sukkot, right? Not necessarily this rain, but New York rain. You saw what happened in New York yesterday. If it rains on Sukkot, it's a siman klala. It is a sign of a curse on the first day of Sukkot. So much so, it is analogized to what happens if a servant brings a drink to a master, thinking that the servant is bringing the master exactly what the master wants, and the master pours the water right back into the servant's face. That's the message we're supposed to be hearing from God. If God had invited us, we thought, to sit outdoors in the sukkah today, we thought, and all of a sudden it's pouring, that is God, our master, throwing the water back at us, suggesting that we did something wrong suggesting that we somehow brought this upon us ourselves. Put the theology aside for a second and just recognize our ancestors trying to make sense of what could it possibly mean if the environment which we're supposed to be enjoying on this first day of Sukkot will not permit us to enjoy it. That is a terrible sign. Why is that like the needle on a record? Because a week from now, we're going to be praying for rain. We're going to be changing our liturgy entirely for months, saying the only thing we want is rain. We're vulnerable. We need rain. We're scared of drought. We need rain. Our crops need the water. We need it now. The rain today, a disaster. The rain next week, the answer to our prayers. This bespeaks a aiming for simcha, for joy, that if it's a little bit off, you can't imagine how things could be any more off. Think of a moment in a relationship with a person or a moment in a relationship with yourself or with your experience of Judaism where if every note gets hit, you feel like you are a part of the upper realm of joy. And if one small thing is off, you question yourself or you question the other, you wonder if this thing was meant to be. Some joy is very, very vulnerable. And some senses of satisfaction can be undone with the smallest alteration. Something that was supposed to happen today doesn't happen until tomorrow. That doesn't seem like a minuscule change. That seems like a gargantuan change. That part of Simcha, I think, is hovering this season as well. Paradigm four the one that's speaking to me the most right now. It comes from a wonderful Hasidic text, Rabbi Avram Weinberg of Slonim. He was the first Slonim Rebbe, a very significant uh, uh, Hasidic dynasty that was founded um, just a, a couple of generations after Hasidut itself was founded. Listen to what Rabbi Avram Weinberg of Slonim says about Sukkot. I'm going to read it in Hebrew for those who understand the Hebrew so you can hear his lyricism, but I'll translate it as well. Bechag HaSukkot, on the holiday of Sukkot, Sarich Yehudi, a Jew must lahatchil mechadash. A Jew has to start from scratch on the holiday of Sukkot. Start from scratch doing what? Ba'avodat Hashem, in the service of God, besimcha, 
and this time is if he's saying, you got to start from scratch and do it this time from joy. Compared to what? What were we doing our service to God? In what vein were we doing it about a week ago? In fear, in trembling, in obligation, in if I don't come that I might be cursed. My life depends on it. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Yom Hadin, the day of judgment, and Yom Kippur, the day when we see if our tshuva worked, fear and trembling. The Slonimer Rabbi says, a week later you get a chance to start the whole thing again, this time besimcha, with happiness. Mashal, this can be compared to. Leven melech, shebarach me'aviv. Imagine the son of a king who fled his father's kingdom. And eventually the prodigal son returns and makes his way back. But the king is not quite convinced that his son has returned in the right frame of mind. And he's not so desirous of making full peace with him. Because he's nervous. He's a little suspicious, the king. That maybe the son didn't come back from a deep sense of remorse or contrition or, or deep inner tshuva. Maybe he came back because he wanted something. Maybe he came back because he was feeling pressure. But he doesn't yet sense that the son is back for the right reasons. Maybe he's just afraid of his father, the king. But eventually... And the nimshal, the analogy here is the move from the high holidays to Sikkot. When he sees his son back and serving his father, working with his father with a sense of joy, sense of elation, a sense of satisfaction, rather than a sense of nervous, nervousness or earning a reward, the king knows that his son came back to him with a full heart. And that is the aspect of Sukkot. As if we are the child who ran away from our parent God because we're always running away from God. Of course we came on Yom Kippur. Who wouldn't? Of course we beat our chests. And of course we fasted. And of course we spent the whole day in shul. Because we're terrified that if we don't, something awful will happen to us. And then a few days later, and then a few days later, once we've been given the opportunity to reset, we start coming back to God, not because everyone else is, so we might, might as well. Not because I've been told that I have to my entire life and I'm just not willing to buck the system, but because we had an opportunity to come back with a sense of simcha, the sense of joy that may not have been hovering for us on those very heady and intense days. This is the simcha, and I made a small Facebook post about it this week. This is the simcha, not of Ni'ilah, but of daily minyan. This is the simcha, not of gathering together when everyone in the community is gathering together. This is the simcha of doing a mitzvah, of stepping forward into prayer and stepping forward into religious moments because you want to, because you're desirous of that relationship with the Holy One, because life is sweeter when you're engaged in those kinds of decisions about what religious life should be. This is the simcha of everyday commitment. This is the simcha of daily choices about how you're going to make your life closer to the life that we imagine the Holy One wants from us. So as we sit in the first day of Sukkot, and hopefully if the rain holds out, eventually be sitting in the Sukkah itself,
we could remind ourselves of the four at least paradigms of simcha without knowing for sure which one was originally intended by that miniature word ach. But I think we can also work on the skill and it's a skill that requires development and requires investment of making the joy not out of the obvious but also making the joy out of nothing and making life not just expectedly samach when the circumstances are perfect but finding the least likely moments where joy might be possible and doing the thing and saying the word and extending the self and making the commitment such that we experience it not just as sameach, but ach, couldn't possibly be more sameach. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.